You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations. True owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. And you are on 3CR, and it's Monday breakfast this morning, and uh, it's a bit cool out there, but um, Alice, you came in on your bike. I know. You I did. don't know why I continue to do it to myself. Oh, no, well, you always look so wonderful when you, you <laughs> are energized. And so uh, we're in the, you're in the studio with Alice. Uh, with, uh, Good well, morning. Well, you're not quite in the studio, but you sort of are <laughs> with Judith and with out. Dean. Good morning. And good morning. It's the 26th of August. Oh, oh. <laughs> Moving closer to September, Dean. I know you're hanging out for that oh. <laughs> spring. and Hanging in there. Um, yeah, some of us with allergies are and not. The warmer oh, weather is good. Oh, yeah. So um, we'll Next have somebody lessons. from Asthma Australia here talking to us later on about how to get prepared for yeah. you know pollen and, and all sorts of yeah. other allergies mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and uh, just before we go on to what else we have on this morning, I want to thank Beyond Zero Emissions and the, this morning looking at Indigenous knowledges and that was and science. That was pretty exciting, pretty great show, as always, as always. So, yes, we're going to hear a bit about asthma and allergies. I think it's coming up around 7.45, is that yep. right? Yeah, yeah. And... Um, yeah, I'm wondering, I think, Alice, you have something you've brought back from the UK. I do. I have some more audio from the UK. So while I was back, I managed to speak to a couple of people who I know from home around London about yeah, their feelings and thoughts on politics at the moment and in the last couple of years, how it's actually felt being in London at that point. Yeah, because you've been away all that time. Yeah, so I've been yeah. away. So you've been, you've been here in Australia with us. Yeah. Yeah, lucky us. Yeah, <laughs> and lucky me. I've not been. I've not so, been so a part you, of that. So you had a bit of catching up to do when you went home. I on, did. On what's going on? I did. Yeah. yeah. I had some catching up to do. Um, and yeah, it was just interesting speaking about because I think from the outside, um, because I haven't been there, I'm still very optimistic. I've still got the energy to to say no because i'm a i was a remainer with the brexit vote um to say no we can we can keep going we can keep going we'll keep fighting this but actually the energy in london and in the uk at the moment is very different i've not been there so i have the energy to keep to keep that up but it's interesting speaking to people back home about actually how they're feeling now and and a bit of distance from it also i think gives you gives you another time to perspective yeah exactly yeah for sure and um, I went along to an exhibition at the um, Immigration Museum on, well, Friday. And, and the, the, the um, exhibition's called Tatao, Marks of Polynesia, Our Voices, Our Bodies. Are, sorry, um, it's not Marks. Oh, yes, it is. Marks of Polynesia, Our Voices, Our Bodies, Our Marks. It was an amazing exhibition. And after that, I was able to speak to Sione Nappi Francis, who's giving a talk there in September, coming up September 15th, 
about um, the whole idea, well, this talk's called Tatatao, Tatao and Tattoo on customary and contemporary art forms of tattoo in the Pacific. So it's a long way talk. But anyway, as a person who was a total novice and really didn't know much about it, first of all, the exhibition was fantastic, so beautiful, the photos of men and women. uh, Tattoos. Well, the exhibition's called Tatao. Tatao, okay. But we'll hear more about that. Yeah, 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 sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of Fantasy Island. Oh, we're, oh okay, okay. <laughs> the plane, boss, the plane, tattoo. So that's why I was sort of, yeah, yeah but it'll be great well, to we hear will, that. Well, we will delve, mm. delve in. And so that's with, with my issue. That's coming up around 8.15. And um, at 8, uh, Professor Libby Porter's going to join us. She's been out at Jabron uh, Country and Embassy. She went out on Wednesday when um, there was a threat to evict. Mm. And um, in the end, she and five other colleagues wrote a paper yeah. about yeah. what happened. What happened what, Well, you know, what, uh, I guess the whole, yeah, what happened on Wednesday. I'm not going to say mm. more because she'll yeah. tell us yeah. all about it and that'll be great. And mm-hmm. it's been an ongoing fight, obviously, for to save those trees. Yeah, um, and that's a sort of to- trees. towards going towards Ballarat. Is that right? Ararat. Ararat, yeah. Yeah, I think it's before Ararat, but in that kind of country. Have yeah. you driven through that area? I would, I, only up to Stall. Um, okay. yeah, yeah, but well, I know yeah. that they were doing the protests. Obviously, we we spoke to some of the ladies there last year yeah. when it was on, when I did Wednesday breakfast. Yeah, so the protest yeah. has been going for a while. And I, I'm just wondering if you, yeah, I'm just thinking about the country because whenever I drive to Adelaide and I drive through that section of highway, I mm. find it actually it's quite beautiful, yeah. and mysterious and. Lovely, yeah. and uh, so and I haven't gone off the highway, so I can imagine if you go off the highway further, be that, uh, yeah. yeah, pretty amazing. Anyway, it'll be great to hear uh, what uh, Libby Porter's got to, got to say and got to tell us about what's happening there. An update. Uh, so this morning we're going to be uh, speaking with um, Dr. Prudence Flowers from the U- and from Flinders University, and she's going to tell, talk about how the U.S. Christian right is shaping those protests against the bill to decriminalize abortion. It's passed mm. the lower house, but it still has to go to the upper, to house, the upper house. And yeah. it's been delayed. Mm. That vote in the upper house has been delayed by the premier. And um, so she's going to tell us a bit more about that. But I think we have a little music uh, coming up. And that was the bamboos. And what a, a great sound to start Monday morning. Do you <laughs> love it? woken me up. The bamboos. With backfired. Bamboos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that song. It's just great. Okay. Well, as we, we were talking about just before we um, heard that great piece of music, there's been really noisy rallies against the abortion decriminalization bill that's currently before the New South Wales Parliament. It's a lot of action on social media, lots of noise. The bills passed the upper house, or sorry, passed the lower house, and um, it's now headed for the upper house. But the premier, Gladys Berjiklian, has delayed that vote. On the surface, it seems to allow more time for debate. I think in a way it's also responding to a lot of the uh, demonstrations that have been on. But Dr. Prudence Flowers from Flinders University argues that there's, there's a whole lot more at play around those demonstrations. In her article, which was published in the conversation last Thursday, Dr. Flowers argues that the U.S. United States right to life movement 
is kind of shaping that abortion debate in New South Wales. And I began by asking her what proportion of people in New South Wales support the decriminalization of abortion. It's a very high proportion, Judith. In a very recent survey conducted around the current kind of decriminalisation moment, New South Wales residents indicated that 73% of respondents supported full decriminalisation. And a poll a few years ago when decriminalisation was also being discussed actually had higher rates of pro-choice support. So in that 2015 poll, it indicated 87% of respondents believed a woman should be able to have an abortion and only 6% opposed abortion in all circumstances. And those New South Wales polls are completely in line with a really long polling history of Australia more broadly where there is fairly consistent, steady and deep public support for abortion rights for women. New South Wales, is is it one of the last states to decriminalise abortion in Australia? It is one of the last states. So it is unusual in that it has never updated the place of abortion in its criminal statute. South Australia did liberalise its abortion laws in 1969, but it's South Australia and New South Wales, which are the two states in which abortion still remains in the criminal law. There's overwhelming support and most states have gone down this line, it seems a bit odd that there's such a protest going on in New South Wales about this new legislation, which will just bring New South Wales in line with other states. It is odd. Probably the depth of sentiment in New South Wales at the moment comes from both the fact that there are several leading federal former or current politicians who oppose abortion, and so they're intervening in this debate. But New South Wales is also coming in kind of a trajectory of decriminalisation measures. Well, with those figures, it should be fairly easy to pass this legislation, and the right-to-life movement in Australia is tiny. Mm -hmm. Are we being subjected to influence from a foreign power on this issue? I think where we're seeing the influence of particularly U.S. movements against abortion, is the way in which politicians approach decriminalisation. In New South Wales, there have been an array of amendments proposed, most of which didn't get up in the lower house, but they really reflect concerns that have originated in the United States and then have been kind of exported outside. What is significant in the New South Wales case is that they are supposedly indicating that they're willing to consider an amendment that would prohibit abortion on the grounds of sex selection, which is a US strategy. What does that mean, Prudence, sex selection? What they mean is someone who goes to a doctor and finds out that they're having a baby that is a certain sex and then they choose to terminate because it is that sex. They're referring to the preference in some immigrant communities for boy children. So this is a strategy originated in the US in the 2000s and it was part of a broader strategy that was attempting to present abortion as an act of discrimination. The idea that there's this problem with sex-selective abortions has spread more broadly. So in the UK, in the 2010s, there was a lot of national, I'm going to call it hysteria, around a supposed epidemic of sex-selective abortions, and this was really pushed by the tabloid media. What evidence is there, say, in Australia that this is going on at all? There is not evidence. In fact, today, the New Daily published a really great article talking about the fact that the evidentiary basis that people in New South Wales are using, they're misinterpreting and misrepresenting what it actually says. So a few years ago, there was a large study conducted by Latrobe about not sex-selective abortion, but about gender discrepancies in birth. And it did note that in amongst some communities or some immigrant communities or ethnic communities, there were discrepancies between the number of boys and girls born over a certain kind of period, but they didn't attribute that to sex-selective abortion. And in fact, they were quite careful to say that that could come from a number of factors, one of which could have been 
IVF. So there's not evidence. So to a certain extent, I think a lot of this is a manufactured fear, and I think it's significant that it was brought up in Queensland but didn't gain traction there. It's been brought up in South Australia. This is part of a kind of strategy, and I think it's important for people to realise that it's not describing reality. So how does the New South Wales bill to decriminalise abortion compare with legislation in comparable Western countries? I guess I would call it fairly moderate or even fairly conservative. So New South Wales has modelled its bill pretty closely on the Queensland decriminalisation bill from last year. And one of the things that I think is important to note, given all the sort of misinformation about what New South Wales is proposing, um, is that it has a gestation limit of up to 22 weeks. So women can seek abortion up to 22 weeks. They can access abortion after that if two independent doctors approve. So that's something that people like Barnaby Joyce, uh, people like Tony Abbott, uh, people like both the Catholic and the Anglican Archbishops in New South Wales have claimed means abortion is available up to birth. And they've used, I would say, Donald Trump-esque language to describe what the bill is permitting. And that's simply not accurate. There's all kinds of medical guidelines and codes about when doctors can ethically perform procedures and for people to be seeking terminations after 22 weeks. In the majority of cases, that's for reasons of severe fetal anomaly. And we know that from all kinds of data from across the Western world. And the other reason why women or pregnant people seek terminations after 22 weeks is because of often really complex and difficult personal social circumstances that might include things like drug and alcohol addiction, domestic violence, homeless. It's often people in the most difficult situations who are the most vulnerable who seek terminations after 20 weeks. In terms of where they sit in relation to other countries, the New South Wales and Queensland bill are both proposing something that is has a lower cutoff than Victoria, which passed its legislation in 2008. It's a lower cutoff than what's in place in the ACT. South Australia is a bit different because our decriminalisation bill, it's with our law of Law Reform Institute at the moment, so we don't yet know what the final proposed model will be. But in terms of places outside Australia, the UK allows terminations up to 24 weeks and it has provisions to allow access after that point for reasons of fetal anomaly or risk to the mother. In the US, the big Supreme Court case that covers this is Roe v. Wade and that doesn't allow outright bans on abortion before fetal viability, which is seen as 24 to 28 weeks. Canada doesn't have any upper gestation limits on abortion. So, you know, what New South Wales is proposing is not this kind of radical and extreme measure. It is in some ways more conservative than a lot of what is out there in the kind of comparable Western world. And if you've just tuned in, we're we're listening to um, Dr. Prudence Flowers from Flinders University. She's a historian who focuses on social movement, activism, modern conservatism, medicine and public health. So she's been studying this issue for quite some time. And as she's just pointed out, the bill is in line with legislation to decriminalize abortion, that is take it out of the criminal code, which has been passed in Queensland, about to be finalized in South Australia. But it looks like the Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, is under pressure from a very vocal minority because we've heard the, the statistics, the figures, mm. the electorate is in favour of this. Um, but this vocal bi- minority, I think, uh, is causing the Premier to get the jitters. And uh, I'm wondering, how is the Christian right managing to punch so much above its weight and, and harness... Uh, uh, no, sorry, and well, harness, I guess, um, a kind of particular 
a group of people, a particular constituency that are out and demonstrating, but also how is it able to harass our elected representatives? This is... <laughs> yeah, and, it, and sometimes it goes far beyond that too because obviously the, in the service sector there's, there, it's harassing doctors who then become conscientious objectors even though their professionalism says that they've got to do more to help you know, yeah. if the law was passed. Well, I mean, what we know is when abortion is not available, people, women, seek them anyway. Mm. They go it, somewhere and else. Much, mm-hmm. And much more, and so they have to go into the criminal economy mm. in, and in much more dangerous situations. Often their reproductive health is compromised. Some, some women died. I mean, mm. all of this is, is well documented. And, and, and in other states, because New South Wales is now the last state. Well, there, to it's, it's to decrim, take yeah. out the criminal code yeah. is what, you know, abortion has been available, of course in New South Wales with, with um, you know, the, the guidelines that, that currently exist. So, but I, I was curious about how, is the, how are these opponents who make up a fairly small number in our community able to wield such uh, influence, as particularly on, on our politicians? So I asked Dr. Flowers about what happened in South Australia recently, like just last December, when the bill to decriminalise abortion was proposed last year. Greens MP Tammy Franks introduced a decriminalisation bill in December last year. She introduced it in the Legislative Council. Which is the upper house. Which is our upper house, sorry. As that was happening, because it was kind of known she was going to introduce a bill, her staffers were receiving verbally abusive phone calls and also threats, which included uh, what Tammy Franks described as violent rape threats from people who identified as Canadian abortion opponents. And that was reported to police, and thankfully nothing further happened there. But in the South Australian context... We've seen some interesting examples of U.S. interest in our state, and clearly this is coming from opponents of abortion in South Australia reaching out to U.S. allies. So during April, when there's nationwide in the capital cities a big anti-abortion clinic protest event that happens, which is called 40 Days for Life, South Australian opponents of abortion brought out the chair of 40 Days for Life from Texas and they brought out some other anti-abortion activists from the US as well and brought them to Parliament to talk with political opponents of the decriminalisation bill. So that's not a hidden thing. There are photos of those US right to lifers on the floor of the SA Parliament with certain SA politicians. And uh, as a fairly small state yes. population-wise, uh, South Australia would be fairly easy pickings, I guess. There have historically always been connections in Sydney and in Melbourne with the US right life movement but those have tended to be more group to group rather than politicians bringing out and engaging with right to life activists so historically there's the Australian Right to Life Federation and then there's Right to Life Australia which are based on the east coast and they have consistently brought out leading right to life opponents of abortion over the decades. What is interesting to me is that they seem to have sought out people that are kind of on the extreme end of US abortion politics. That's that's who they're bringing in like the most extreme from the US. They're the people who are seen as really being able to galvanize others. So they've brought out people like Father Paul Mark, a really internationally influential, what we call an absolutist. So he opposes abortion in every instance, including to save the life of the mother. They've brought out a man called Joseph Scheidler, who's actually the kind of godfather of 
the type of clinic protests that are now normal with what they call sidewalk counselling. He began all of that in the 70s. A few years ago, they tried to bring out an incredibly controversial activist called Troy Newman from a group called Operation Rescue. Troy Newman had his visa cancelled and was deported because in some of his writing, he had questioned why abortion doctors are not executed. And some other people who work for that group have tried to kill abortion doctors in the past. So this so is in the United States. Yeah, in the, sorry, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So part of that is that these people are seen as inspiring figures. Australian right to lifers do seem to be drawn to what I would see as the far edges of the U.S. Right which is a kind of incredible given mm. Australia's history of supporting abortion mm. reform and of course this would not be the only issue Right to Life would be active on. Australian Right to Lifers are, are also very interested in things like euthanasia and also IVF. In some ways because abortion has not been as much of a political issue here I think they've directed their energies, more diverse targets. As a social movement, they're a very small phenomenon. There are people who regularly protest, but these are relatively small groups. What they do have are kind of allies, particularly at the federal level, and I think that amplifies their views. And um, that was um, Dr. Prudence Flowers from Flinders University, and uh, certainly those views have been amplified uh, in this debate to decriminalize abortion. Let's, you know, it's to decriminalize, to take it out of the criminal code uh, in New South Wales. And uh, so we've heard a bit about South Australia, what's happened there. We know what's happening in New South Wales. And just last week we were speaking to Noah Reisman about the bill around transgender peoples that's before the parliament here in Victoria. And uh, he Mm. was pointing out that there's been quite a bit of misinformation also Mm. spread around that bill. And with the um, New South Wales bill, you know, if if organisations like the Uniting Church can break ranks with other religious institutions to throw its support behind something like this, it's always quite interesting where the pro-life people are getting their support from, which is what Prudence is saying. They're bringing in the big guns, aren't they, from all over the world. Yeah, I think mm. she, she was a bit, she was careful as we spoke about it in saying that, you know, it's shaping what's happening yeah. here. Yeah. And uh, certainly what happened to Tammy Frank's office seemed like, like it probably was coming from Canada, you know, those oh. threats. I mean, I'm a bit embarrassed, you know, given my Canadian <laughs> connection. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, so, it, it, and I guess one of the things that one of the strategies has been to to gain a foothold in a mainstream political party. And that's what's happened in the United States. You know, what was a fringe group gradually gained more power within the Republican Party. And we've seen what's happened uh, to the United States. I mean, that's not the only reason. There's other extreme right groups there as well, not just groups like the Right to Life. But at any rate, obviously very active, uh, invited in, you know, invited in Mm. to Australia. By the group. So it's something just to be aware of. And uh, when you wonder, you know, what's going on here, that there is this influence coming yeah, from outside. I mean, it is an international movement as well. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, and I think you mentioned that the, just so that we've got some context on, because I didn't understand it, this new bill would allow for terminations up to 22 weeks and later if two doctors believe they should be performed given the medical, physical, social and psychological circumstances. That's right. Well, yeah. yes. Because right. there has been, there was a bill, but it was actually sh- a shorter timeline, wasn't there? Because you mentioned this is a bigger change. No, it's not so much that, that this is a big change. This is more, 
it's been represented as a big change by the opponents. Yeah. But in fact, as um, Dr. Flowers points out, it's a cons- more conservative than some of the other bills in other states and certainly internationally yeah. in terms of the length of gestation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those late terminations are, are not very common, but they do occur. And as she pointed out, you know, usually the circumstances are um, kind of... Um, fairly serious yeah. implications around uh, the fetus or, you know, the mother or the circumstances, uh, social circumstances. Yeah. And I think if you if you sort of, um, you know, are having a little bit of a crisis, you can talk to organisations like Lifeline Australia. I know they do suicide prevention and crisis support, but there's other organisations there. So Lifeline is 131114 if you're having to deal with your personal issues regarding this as well, because it is quite a... An emotional topic for people. It can be. Mm. I think what people don't really understand is that, you know, it's a it's about women's health. Mm. It's about health, Mm. but it's been uh, ramped up by opponents to be something else. And also, I'm very um, skeptical about the sincerity of some of this because I think a lot of it, you know, if they can't get this, then they'll move on to another issue. And I think it's about gaining political power Mm. as much as anything, um, (coughs) something to make a noise about. Anyway, it's something to... Prudence say um, that they are for euthanasia and IVF, or is that something that... No, these are other areas. You mean the the, uh, right to life? Mm. She said those are other areas they take an interest in. They take an interest in. Against, you know, and and probably would work against. But, you know, it is also, as so many things, there's many layers, many levels. The Guardian has done a really interesting article about it that's exploring that particular bill. So if you want to read further, that, that would be a good place to start, as well as the paper that Dr. Flowers has written, so, and we'll put that link to our, on, up on our website. Yeah. yeah, but I think we're now going to hear from Nakane. Yes. Yeah, clairvoyant, it's called. And he's a South African artist who was it just last year. When I close my eyes, I saw prairies, someone all that was been buried, oh. That was the amazing Nakane with the with clairvoyant. Monday. Monday. Cracker. Monday. Monday. <laughs> Monday. Cracker. <laughs> it is. The sounds of Judith. <laughs> sounds so, of Dean. Yeah. The sounds of Alice. Hi. The sounds of Nakane. How good was that? Yeah. Wonderful. So great music to start us off on a Monday so far. Yeah. But for now, we're going to head to some news from the UK. We are. Well, not so much news. But when I was back um, in the UK yeah. for a couple of weeks, I took the time to just speak to a few of, um, well, some of my close friends and family about how they're feeling um, throughout and how it's been throughout the last couple of years in Britain. So a bit of background, I think everybody probably knows all this information, but 2016, the UK voted to leave the European Union without knowing what the future would look like for the UK within that within that union. 
Um, so the UK made this decision based on what we now know um, were misleading or completely false claims. Mis- misleading claims Misleads. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> everywhere. The whole campaign um, yeah. was pretty much built off of very yeah. misleading claims. Um, and so since that time, we've seen David Cameron resign. Who was the con- who was the conservative leader at the time that agreed to go ahead with the referendum? Theresa May gave the Brexit negotiations a shot. She's resigned, and um, now we see Boris Johnson taking the reins and seeing what he can do. The last person the standing. Yeah, the last person standing. Um, and, and I think there was a, a news report on Friday that I think. Um, Boris Johnson had told some of his MPs not to discuss Brexit or something or to back Brexit. I didn't actually hear it, but I know that yeah. there's been some huge ruckus Just about over the last four days. The war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's also um, said that leaving now with a no deal with the European Union, because that's what these negotiations are all about at the moment, um, is now touch and go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A million to one, yeah, he says. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Who knows? What does it mean, the no deal? Like, wh- wh- a deal is preferable to a no deal? Yes. Yeah. So, so Which is what Theresa wanted to do. So but Theresa no had her deal. So she had um, spent her time or whatever coming up with this plan that she thought was the best idea, but nobody would back it. And the EU kept um, refusing the deal, and mm. no, nobody would back it in um, Parliament. But she, nonetheless, she kept going, kept going, kept going, yes. um, and and she wouldn't change it, and she wouldn't she wouldn't change her mind. So um, yeah, so that's why that didn't work. But the reason why having a deal is either the important thing or not, nobody even knows. No, yeah. I think, I think nobody that's not knows. One, but that explains yeah. why I don't know. Yes. Thank you. So nobody, so so yeah. we don't know because it's never happened before. So nobody yes. has left the EU like yes. this in these cases before. But if so, so at the moment they're negotiating things like uh, trade, even like air travel. If we would would be able to land planes in a certain country, so with with the EU we have all these deals anyway with the, all the countries. But you had all that. We had yeah. all that. Mm. So leaving and having and leaving with a no deal means that we mm. would have to go to every individual country and make new deals about pretty much everything, everything absolutely mm. everything. Because mm. um, the EU offers you a single market, yes. essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Um, so that's what would happen with the no deal. And nobody, again, nobody knows how difficult that's going to be. I doubt they've even looked into it, because as we know, it definitely wasn't looked into before the referendum. Why don't they just go to Scotland and just copy just those guys? <laughs> no, no, in Scotland, obviously, before well, they left, they, they put all the well, they guts haven't, in order, they didn't haven't they? Left. But they wanted to, they, they had their referendum to leave the UK a mm, couple of right. years ago. Yeah. Which not, was, not the EU, the yeah, UK. Yeah. Um, and obviously that was before the, um, before the UK had the yes, referendum to leave. Indeed. So interesting as to what's going to happen with Scotland. Absolutely. Um, so there's lots of things going on, really. And well, I'm dying to hear yes, what people had to say. A huge amount of the population want to have a second vote. So they want to go to the polls again, or they want to go to the people again. Like a second referendum. Yeah, because we know now more information than what we did before. We we know the lies that were fed to us before, and a lot of people will have changed their mind or won't have. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so I started by asking my, my nearest and dearest at home if they could sum up in a few words what the past two years looked like in British politics. 
chaotic, disastrous. Every conceivable objective you could imagine which would describe the most appalling democratic cock-up. A mess. A complete utter mess. All a bit of disaster, headless mess, uh, with no direction of where it's going, where it's come from, and everyone's a bit discontent at the moment. And do you think we should have a second vote following the Brexit aftermath? No. I think if you have a second vote, you'll need a third one as a decisive vote. So I really think if you're going to go for a second vote, you've got to go for a third as well. Yeah, we did have that first vote, and that was democracy in action there. Whilst you could say the vote should be more skewed to, we need an overwhelming majority to do this, it did win. People knew what they were, in effect, voting for. And as long as you got, you got all the big marches in London, everyone's saying, do another vote. But then they lost to begin with. So, and it, yeah, it does go against the whole democracy where everyone has their vote and that's what matters and that should be the end of it. I think we should have a general election. I think the, uh, both political parties do not, uh, have not really got the mandate from the country that they need. Uh, I think it needs to go back to the country. I think it should be more than a general election because we now have a clear understanding of what leaving Europe means. Labour should very much come out to be the party of Remain. Uh, clearly the Conservatives, led by Boris Johnson, are those that want to leave the, leave the European Union uh, and that will give the, the electorate a clear choice. Um, and it should be argued very much along those lines. What do you think about the statement that Boris Johnson could potentially be the last UK Prime Minister? So Prime Minister of the UK as we know it, because we know Scotland will pursue potentially leaving the UK again. I think that's a tricky one, because the whole Scottish vote a couple of years ago, four years ago, was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, and now they're going to keep wanting to go again and go again and go again. Um, and I think there'll always have to be a united kingdom of some sort because we've, we've got the borders, we've got the boundaries. We need the trade between the places. Um, and then if, you do, if they do go their own way in Parliament, they have to recognise the impact on themselves that would have. Um, and if they want to go for it alone, I don't, I'm, it doesn't bother me. I know people are now saying that the Scots want to change their mind but I, I don't think that's true. Um, I think that Boris Johnson will be the last Prime Minister, as we see the UK now, um, because something's going to happen in October, and it will change everything. And I don't know what that is, but he will be the last. The worst-case scenario is you could have a united Ireland, because uh, if the European Union insists upon... Uh, a, border, a border controls and it could well take place in the Irish Sea. Therefore, you will have uh, a united Ireland, which when you consider that would actually undermine the Good Friday Agreement, it would pretty much achieve what 120 years of war failed to achieve. Uh, and uh, as with regard to Scotland, I think the SDP will insist on a, a net second referendum and I think that will most probably take place. So I think, yes, it will be the end of the union as we know it. How do you think Boris is going to be different to Theresa May? I think he's going to be a lot more assertive, have an action plan and try and get it done. Well, just whether it's the right action plan, we don't know, but hopefully get something on the table, get something better for Britain.
But he's not going to do a referendum, though, which I think what people want. I think that it's a ploy by Boris Johnson to talk up a no deal to, so that it actually frightens the EU to actually renegotiating a better deal because I don't think Theresa May actually understood how to negotiate Um, she sort of tried to ask them, ask the EU what they wanted from us whereas you know, if you are going to negotiate you should go in there with an idea put down what you want and then you know sort of make uh, concessions where you think they're appropriate but she didn't do that and I think Boris Johnson and perhaps his advisers, maybe they've learnt from that. And so they're going in tough, talking up a no deal. Um, when, you know, if we can renegotiate, um, then I think that would be better for us. Do you think if Labour were to go up against Conservatives now in a general election, they have any chance in winning? No. I think, I think Jeremy Corbyn is a very uh, traditional socialist, a man of great integrity, but he doesn't appeal to the electorate. Uh, I don't think he'd win sufficient votes to have a majority in the House of Commons. And I think also his front bench is actually pretty pretty woeful. Do you think the next coming years are going to be as disrupted as the last? Um, yes, I do. I'm not quite sure how disruptive it's going to be. The problem with Brexit is nobody knows what's going to happen. And I think that's why um, it's taken this long to actually come out, if we do come out in October. Um, So I think we've got a few more years of rockiness. And um, I don't know how long this is going to last for. So those were some voices from Londoners at home and London being mostly Remain. But I think throughout my experience, just talking to people about it, um, people are just overwhelmingly tired and want... They actually don't even know what they want to see happening. They just want something to They want it settled. They want it settled, whether it's good, ugly, whatever. They just want it done. Um, And, yeah, that's the point that people have come to at the moment with... Yeah, and it's, that, it's that being in the unknown that's so frightening. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. If you know what it is, then you can begin to make plans, yeah. so you can begin to, to deal with it, work with it. But Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And we're now going to listen to um, a song called Great by a band called Idols, and this is a song about Brexit, so this should be yeah. fun. <laughs> What a tune. It seems to feel like, you know, what's going on from the, the interviews. That you yeah. see you Chaos. Chaos. <laughs> Chaos well, we started exactly. with a really soft, we lifted up a notch, and then we've just gone yes. maybe well, 75%. Yeah. Right. Or we can play some Def Leppard. <laughs> <laughs> 
But we are now coming right back. Yes. Right yes. back to home here. Um, and, and some of you might sort of maybe can tell in my, my voice that I'm, you know, sniffling and things like that. So with spring about to descend on us, most people who suffer from asthma are aware that pollen is perhaps the most obvious springtime asthma and allergy offender. It is also not the only spring allergy and asthma trigger. To find out more about how we can prepare for this spring, we're joined by Anthony Flynn, Senior Research Policy and Advocacy Manager at Asthma Australia. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning, and thanks for having me. And um, I'm sorry, I, little, I missed that little rev up song just before. I <laughs> yeah, we normally try and uh, you know avoid having people listen because then you lose your train of thought when you're listening to good music. Um, I mentioned that you're at uh, Asthma Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of uh, Asthma Australia there? Yeah, Asthma Australia uh, supports the needs of consumers with asthma. It's 2.7 million people with asthma across Australia through the provision of direct services, um, the delivery of advocacy activities uh, to address the obstacles that get in the way uh, in the environment around people with asthma and uh, invest in research for the next, you know, the next treatment and the, the cure, the cause and, um, you know, the, the, the uh, best kind of support services uh, to, to best address the specific individual needs of people with asthma. And I guess, yeah, the idea is to deliver excellence every day for people with asthma. And I mentioned um, in my introduction there that spring is coming. I know I'm, you know, like five days early. But why is it getting more and more critical for people with asthma to get ready for spring, you think? Well, it's really important. Spring is a season that is uh, notoriously problematic for people with asthma. Uh, with spring comes uh, the blossoms and the, and the blooming flowers of summer, and all of that is uh, created through uh, through, the, through uh, pollination uh, between plants. And um, some people with asthma uh, identify pollen as being a factor that triggers their symptoms. And when people are not prepared for spring, they're um, they're unnecessarily vulnerable to the pollens that can get into their airways and and flare up their their um, their asthma symptoms and cause them problems often and sometimes uh, they're they're they can be very serious problems that require emergency response. Um, we know also that with uh, the, cli- the climate changing that um, uh, pollen seasons and pol- pollinating uh, plants that affect people with asthma are, m- are more and more abundant. So uh, it's really important that we get this message out there to uh, the, the must be almost half a million Victorians with asthma, and uh, and the you know the consumers in in the, the the other parts of Australia who pick up on this episode to um, to talk to their doctor about their asthma control and get on the right preventer treatment that's going to keep them safe and uh, and uh, uh, out of trouble during the, the, the pollen spring season. And, and I think I also mentioned that, you know, it's, um, it, I guess pollen is perhaps the most obvious springtime asthma, but it's not the only spring allergy and asthma trigger. We know um, June last year or around that time there was that Melbourne thunderstorm and, you know, there was a, in the inquest they came out with the idea that survival chances were greater if symptoms were noticed, but also if people knew what symptoms they had. So what are some of the different kinds of allergies that people you know, have that might contribute to sort of, um, you know, a, a really, really bad spring. Yeah, well, that's a really important point. Uh, the thunderstorm event in November 2016, it was, uh, really revealed to us 
that, um, you know, that, that it was a tragic event. Nine people tragically lost their lives, and there were, I think, uh, 8,000 presentations to hospitals. Um, the ambulances uh, in, in Victoria were stretched beyond their capacity. Uh, services ran out of um, life-saving uh, bronchodilator medicine, otherwise known as Ventolin. Uh, so it really, it really hit home how vulnerable this and unique this 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 condition is. Mm. Uh, that you know, change in temperature, change in uh, the weather patterns at the end of a, a, a warm spring into summer could cause such carnage across Melbourne. Um, the, what we what we what we learned from that was that uh, a lot of the people that were affected, a, a significant proportion of people that were affected and needed emergency department care, um, didn't recognise that they had uh, asthma or they weren't taking treatment that was adapted to their uh, specific situation um, that could have uh, helped prevent the symptoms that they experienced during this sunstorm time. Uh, the common the common symptoms and signs that we uh, we, we recommend people listen out for uh, uh, sneezing and wheezing. So mm. if you're a sneezer and wheezer, especially around um, the end of spring into into uh, into summer or the end of winter into spring, uh, you should chat to your doctor, chat to your pharmacist. If you're going to the pharmacy to collect um, some you know some antihistamine uh, tablets or some uh, some eye drops or some nose spray because of those symptoms that you know recur. Uh, during spring, uh, it's a good opportunity to have a chat about whether you have asthma and whether your asthma is ideally um, ideally treated, so that you're not you're not vulnerable to uh, what can be prevented through the right treatment during spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, other other um, other uh, common allergies during spring and and you know across the year are dust mite allergy and you know we could see that. You know, the spring cleaning time, which is time I, I try to avoid, or I, I'd like I say to my partner, I, I spring clean throughout the year. Um, you know, <laughs> hey, even things like hay fever too. Yeah, that's right. So the spring cleaning can throw up dust, and, and one of the most common, if not the most common, allergy for allergen for a person with asthma is dust mite allergen allergy. So that can um, cause them some problems as well. So any any sneezing, wheezing, any coughing, or um, you know, itchiness around the eyes nose and throat uh, should cause uh, the person to, you know, have that chat early on during spring with their health professional, whether it's pharmacy or GP, to get on the right treatment and protect themselves during spring. And I guess, yeah, you've just highlighted then that it is very, very important to have a plan to manage your asthma and things like knowing when to seek medical attention or asking your doctor about effective medicines are quite important. And and you touched on climate change. So with things like air pollution and temperature changes possibly making your symptoms worse, it is very, very important to have a plan. Um, Finally, you know, obviously in your role at Asthma Australia, what, what advice or resources do you have available for people to get prepared for spring? I mean, I think... Um, if you have asthma, you know what you have, but some people might have not even been diagnosed with the condition. So how can they, you know, make make themselves aware? Oh, great. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm glad. You know, we, we'd re- really like to encourage people to access our website, asthmaaustralia.org.au. We've got a, a, a raft of resources there uh, that, that help people to understand what's the, what, what asthma is from the beginning, what medicines are used to treat it, what are the symptoms uh, that people should think about to recognise that they may have it and they may need to seek help about it. Uh, and we have a, a helpline that um, we would really like to encourage um, listeners to, to access. It's 1-800-ASTHMA. And it's uh, essentially, you know, uh, specialist asthma educators that can talk to you about your 
your specific situation and how to have that conversation if it's necessary with your healthcare professional and um, work, walk you through any of the uh, treatment, you know, management um, ideas that are shared with you by your health professional. But, um, you know, everybody that um, has a cough, um, detects a wheeze, uh, notices difficulty breathing or, um, or chest tightness, uh, they're the cardinal and classical symptoms of asthma and they're, and they're ones that shouldn't be ignored. Uh, if you or your loved one have any of those symptoms and um, you haven't uh, had them checked out, they're, they're, uh, that's a pretty good place to start. Yeah, and um, I know you mentioned it's 1-800-ASTHMA, which is 278-462, and people can go to asthmaaustralia.org.au and maybe, um, you know, some people might, um, get some suggestions on how to come up with a written asthma action plan as well. But um, we really appreciate you joining us on uh, 8.55am 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's a pleasure to be along and thanks for your interest. It's important to get the message out there. And that was Anthony Flynn, Senior Research Policy and Advocacy Manager with Asthma Australia. Uh, I don't suffer asthma myself, but spring is a time I dread. <laughs> so many people, so many people. Yeah. I, I, I have to do the lawns. So oh, I, I see. You know, it's, yeah. uh, apart from the obvious of, of not wanting to do the mow the lawns, it's just painful to be out there sort of having the sniffles, having itchy eyes. Oh, yes. um, yeah. Yeah, so... Mm. Hopefully you got some information out of that that will uh, get you ready for a nice spring. Okay, so this is Sheba. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Beginning September 2nd, tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. Well, thanks, Dean. Um, that, was a, that was a great interview about asthma. And uh, we're joined in the studio now by Professor Libby Porter. Libby, do you experience um, asthma at all? Or? Not myself, but one, uh, my youngest daughter does. So. Mm. Okay, yeah. so you know what it's like. So we know about. what it's like, yeah. Yeah. So um, just to give some background, I mean, most of us, and particularly 3CR listeners, are well aware of Major Roads Project Victoria's proposal to extend the Western Highway, and that proposed route will destroy sacred Jaburung trees. Um, the Jaburung people have set up an embassy on country to protect those trees, around 200 and all that. That's right, Libby? Yeah. Even more, I think, yeah. now, okay. uh, particularly over the weekend. Right. And they've been there for about uh, 15 months to prevent the bulldozers coming through. Last Wednesday, they were facing eviction from their own country, and uh, Libby Porter is a professor of urban planning at our MIT. She's joined us in the studio. And big welcome to 3CR, Thank Libby. Thank you for having me. It was right. wonderful to have people come in on a Monday morning. It's <laughs> very exciting. It's a pleasure. And you and some of your colleagues traveled to the Jabworm em- Embassy last Wednesday to show solidarity. That's and, right. And uh, uh, together you wrote a, you've written a paper for the conversation entitled What Kind of State Values a Freeway's Heritage? over the heritage of our oldest living culture. Were you planning to write this paper when you drove up to the Jabwurrung Embassy? No, we had, we had not thought that at all. Uh, it was very spontaneous and happened 
literally on the spot as we were um, invited onto country by uh, Jabrung people and um, to stand in solidarity, which of course we wanted to do. Uh, and yeah, I think it was one of those strong senses of we were being led to write something. So we looked at each other and said, we need to write something. Yeah, it's six <laughs> authors. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a strong support. It, it was. Um, strangely, um, for you know, an academic, I guess, uh, we'd never written together before. In fact, I hadn't met most of those people until... Mm-hmm that morning. We, we know Blanche <laughs> barely because she's come Fabulous. in and spoken to us before but uh, I haven't personally met the other authors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Blanche and, Blanche and uh, Bronwyn are, are close colleagues um, and uh, I met new colleagues and new friends um, and allies as we sat under that grandfather tree and thought yeah we, we can, uh, we have a contribution to make as well here. Um, not speaking of course um, on behalf of or representing yes. Jabrung people mm. but very much wanting to stand in solidarity and speak um, with our non-Indigenous voices about our perspective um, on yeah. this matter. And what was it like being there? What was the country like? The country is beautiful. Uh, the, the country is powerful. Um, is an extremely strong sense of being somewhere tremendously important. Mm-hmm. Um, even from my perspective as a non-Indigenous person, that, that was very strong to me. Um, the trees are extraordinary. Uh, there's no other word for the other than extraordinary. Uh, they are just incredibly powerful. So um, mm. it was an, an incredible privilege to be invited to stand in solidarity with this um, very important struggle. Yes. And, and for someone like the Environment Minister, Susan Lay, to give the project a green light one month ago, despite the evidence, it doesn't really make sense to a lot of people. No, it doesn't really make sense. Um, Presumably there's some other things going on in the background. It would be interesting to know what they they are. Um, You might have seen the ages report yesterday uh, indicating that there have been key pieces of information that haven't been uh, properly considered in these decision-making processes. Uh, And I think that really speaks to some of these really flawed processes by which we undertake this kind of so-called consultation um, to, you know, use metaphorical... I mean, it explains a lot because the Premier has been saying that due process was observed. That's right. And obviously, well, well, whatever due process Mm. is, it isn't adequate. Absolutely not. And I mean, I think the, the, the question about due process is always an interesting one in this kind of context because, you know, due process according to whom and according to what, according to whose law. Um, so, yes, due process has been served according to settler colonial law, the mm-hmm. law of the state, um, around uh, who is the, uh, the, the, re- the registered Aboriginal party, the recognised bodies um, for speaking for this country. Um, but as we know, uh, you know, th- these th- systems are very fraught because they're not set up really um, with any cultural authority and mm. they're not set up um, you know, to appropriately um, enable the, the right kinds of voices and all of the voices to be involved in that and indeed country's voice to be involved in that as well. Um, so I think these, uh, the, the question about due process really indicates how flawed our systems are and how far we are yet to go as non-Indigenous society in understanding what it will mean to be in a proper relationship with Indigenous sovereignty right at the heart of everything we do. Yes, you just can't do token. And on a basic level, the environment itself is something that we should consider. We're felling down trees. Indeed. And major projects, uh, major road projects, Victoria, are just sort of going, oh, we'll give you this much time and you let us know what you think.
That's right, yeah. And, of course, these are really important trees, yeah. uh, not merely, uh, well, uh, not that it's mere, but yeah. not, not only for cultural purposes, but they sequester carbon, they provide um, homes for all sorts of creatures, yeah. um, and, and us, of course, they're you know, serving us as well um, in all sorts of ways that I think we don't even really understand how um, trees are so important to our, uh, our way of life. Um, and, and, of course, all of this is to build... A road. Um, now, you know. Yeah, yes, I mean, I, I love that the, one of the titles, one of the headings in your paper, celebrating 50 years of freeway culture. Whoa! <laughs> and what was that about? Well, as we were sitting under the grandfather tree, um, uh, one of us, um, Bronwyn, got a, a call from um, Lydia Thorpe, who uh, was listening to, I think it might have been um, another radio station, John Fane or someone, and, and heard that there was this uh, proposal by the Victorian government to heritage list, seek heritage listing for the Eastern Freeway. And uh, as we were standing there, kind of listening on the telephone um, in conference call to this statement, we all kind of looked at each other perplexed. And how can that be possible to list oh, a freeway? Oh, but you're an urban planner. I thought you'd no, be excited. Really not. No. <laughs> um, and it seemed really striking as we stood there and, you know, we, we were standing underneath the, the, the grandfather tree, as Jabberung people call it, just looking across to the, the other, to the grandmother tree that um, it's reaching to and, and thinking, how is it possible that we can not be, be listing in the formal sense but, and not be valuing and cherishing this heritage here and yet we can think that bridge design on a you know, carbon-producing <laughs> freeway um, in Melbourne can be somehow worthy of, of cherishing. Uh, what does this say about our values as a community? It, it, it's, it, says, it says an I awful lot, and it, what, was it's this pretty what terrifying. Prompted the paper? This is what prompted the paper. That's what I yeah. thought. That and, was nice. And as yeah. we walked uh, along together um, to participate in a big photograph that was taken um, at, at, just at that time, we looked at each other and said, "Let's write a piece for the conversation," and so we did. Yeah, and it's a great piece, and it fe- it has it has that feeling of spontaneity, and and it's very alive, like the feeling of being there. You know, Thank you, you. I really. I really got that feeling. Yeah. And, and, but it also got me to look a bit at, at the history of the Eastern Freeway. Mm. And that, that, you know, has been mm. celebrated and, mm. and commemorated mm. and, or propo- not proposed. Yet. Yeah, proposed. Proposed. Yeah. And there was ex- almost exactly the same, a mirror image of protest exactly. that went on around that. Mm. And in fact, I think it was cited as one of the reasons it should be heritage listed because, because there was a protest. There we are. Mm. I mean, what have we, what have we learned? Well, well I mean, the, the, we had, uh, I think we were talking to Mr. Allen about the 300 year old splendid red gum at the final Caltex with the... Yeah, we, we yeah. did, we did. <laughs> yeah. Very good, yeah. Yes. I mean, if we think about the destruction that freeways um, wreak on, uh, on environment, if you like, but on country, actually. Um, mm. You know, the Eastern Freeway traverses Wurundjeri country. Uh, it destroyed all sorts of um, very important places. It, it, it continues to have an ongoing impact. You know, it runs right past Bolan Bolan, um, Billabong, and, and um, you know, has all sorts of impacts that, are, you know, we don't even really understand because we're not measuring, because we, we tend not to care about those kinds of things. So I think it really speaks um, volumes about what we choose to value, that we're not going to value the kind of heritage and, and the... Um, and heritage is the wrong word anyway yeah. for that kind of... You know, this is a living, a living culture. It's a, it's a practice sovereignty. It's, it's not something that you know, existed in the past. Um, but it really speaks a lot to what we value as a community um, if we're going to talk about bridge design over um, the oldest living culture on the planet.
for sure. And one of the things you mentioned in your paper was there are other options. There were other options for the Eastern Freeway. There are other options for mm. Western Highway. Can you say a bit about that? Well, I mean, there are always other options. Of course, of course. I thought you'd be specific. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) And there are other specific options as well. Um, There are other routes that are under active negotiation locally um, amongst uh, many of the people who've been actively engaged in this debate um, down near Ararat for for some years now. Um, They've been sidelined for various reasons, and I think it would be useful if government could be a lot more transparent about that process um, and about why it's, it's, it's not possible to build the other route um, that appears to be both cheaper um, and to... Yes, I thought that was quite interesting. They yeah. We're talking about a cheaper route. Yeah, yeah. yeah there are other yeah. environmental impacts of that route, of as course, I understand there it. Always there are always environmental impacts yeah. of, of yeah. building a road. That's right, really why we should maybe cease building roads. Um, but uh, there, so there are other options, and of course we should be having an active discussion about transitioning away from you know, carbon-intensive modes of transport, acknowledging, of course, that's going to take a long time and our, the kind of society that we live in is knitted into a road infrastructure yeah. system and that's going to be hard to undo um, and acknowledging, of course, all of the particularly local needs of that road and all of the issues around that. Not to say that none of those things are important, but that surely we have to have a public conversation about our values um, if we choose this over um, what Jaburung people are fighting to protect and what, in fact, Indigenous people all around the world yeah. are fighting to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we must have a public, better public conversation about um, our apparent lack of imagination to think what else could be possible. And, yeah. and uh, not done under duress as absolutely well. Absolutely <laughs> not done under duress um, it is first principle. Yeah. Yeah, and you do offer a way forward, and I think in a way you've touched on that now. So what would you be advising the government to do? Well, I think what's really important is that um, government takes up the offer um, that Jabarung people have always had on the table, which is to come to country, experience country, sit with people, talk with with country and people, um, the people of country, about what's important and what's valuable um, and what needs to happen. So at least to do that, and and in the same breath to remove the threat of so to, to prevent the eviction order that's, um, that's currently uh, sitting over the top of people, hanging over people, uh, and to negotiate in good faith and to do so with, with a proper recognition that this is sovereign land um, and that w- when we talk about sovereign land, we mean a current contemporary practice of an ancient system of law um, that needs to be valued and needs to be placed at the centre of those negotiations. Hmm. Well, Libby, I think that's a, a great way <laughs> to, to finish the interview and uh, thank you so much for going out to country for meeting with people for being there and for writing the story thank you for having me and a big shout out to those still there standing in solidarity on country with people the fight isn't over yet yes I mean I met someone just last week and it was an event on Thursday night they were saying they were on their way out on the Saturday. So, That's right. Yeah. yeah, so I think there will be a lot of shows. Well, I'm hoping lots more mm. show of support. It'd be great for and people to get involved. how do you get involved? Yeah. Uh, there's follow Facebook groups, basically, um, she, she says, not as a very big or good Facebook user myself, but um, <laughs> there are Jabberung Heritage Embassy on Facebook, um, so I would suggest following those that, that group. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank uh, you. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's all right. I was going to say there is, um, it would be nice for the Federal Environment Minister to make her way down there too, Susan Lay. That would be terrific. <laughs> and to read the report that yeah. apparently she hasn't read yet.
Oh, indeed. So again, thank you so much. I think we've got a bit of music coming up next. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Aluwari Girl. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. We're back on 855 AM 3CR. Just quickly, Libby just left, but she did write her piece with five other authors, Amara Rahim, Blanche Bell-Lee, Bronwyn Lay, Marianne Jago and Mick Douglas. So just a quick shout out to them and thank you for, yeah, putting some, shining a light on what's happening out there. Yeah, it was great and wonderful to have um, Libby in the, in the studio as well. So good. Okay, well, as I said like, right at the beginning of the show, that um, last Friday I went out to see... Um, an exhibition at the um, Victorian uh, Immigration Museum. I love your pronunciations. I've been waiting for this all oh, morning. What, what am I going to say? Well, what, what the exhibition well, was? Well, yeah. <laughs> the the You're on point. It's really great. <laughs> the, name yeah. of the exhibition. Well, I loved learning to say it. To yeah. be honest, yeah. I could I tell. Didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell. I'm such a show off. Oh my god. <laughs> but you know, really, it was a whole new area for me, yeah. and I was just so excited about finding out more about it. So the exhibition is called Tatao. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, Tatao. Yeah. Marks of Polynesia, our voices, our bodies, our marks. And I, I can highly recommend it. And there are a couple of other, there are two others also that deal with um, tattoos. So, um, yeah, so I really encourage people to go along because it's a great exhibition. It's on for a while longer as well. But after that, I was able to speak with um, Sione Nappi Francis. He's the lead curator of Museum Victoria's Te Pacifica Gallery, and he's going to be giving a talk on uh, at the Immigration Museum uh, on the 15th, Sunday the 15th of September from 2 to 3.30, and the, his talk is entitled Tatatau, are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Tatatau, Tatau, and Tattoo. 
and he's going to look at the contemporary, customary and contemporary art forms in tattoo in the Pacific and also, you know, in Melbourne and in the diaspora as well. But I was really interested in knowing more about, um, you know, how one becomes um, a curator at a museum. And so I started by asking Sione, what led him to become involved in the museum in the first place? I started as a, a visual artist. I studied sculpture here in Melbourne. Then I spent some years practicing as a as an artist. As a sculptor? As a sculptor, that's right. It's actually very hard to make uh, a living as an artist. And uh, I started to focus more on customary designs and making and looking at my cultural roots. Uh, I'm a Tongan Australian, born here on Bunurang land in Mornington. And I really started to delve into what my cultural background is and uh, ended up doing museum studies here in Melbourne. And then I volunteered here at uh, Museums Victoria, or Museum of Victoria as it was known then, in uh, 96, and have worked here off and on since. But my focus eventually was to get this current role as uh, curator for the De Pacifica redevelopment. And when did that start? The middle of last year. So it's fairly new, but not because you've been with the museum for such a long time. When you work in a museum in many different roles, you get to understand how a museum works. And also when you're embedded in community, you get to understand how a community works. So from not only a professional perspective, but particularly importantly, a community perspective, uh, bringing those two worlds together is uh, the way we want to go forward, representing our living communities here, not only in Melbourne, but in the Pacific. Uh, Melbourne Museum has an exhibition called Te Vainui o Pacifica, the Great Water of the Pacific, uh, which opened when the museum in its current site in Carlton Gardens opened in 2000. So the Te Pacifica Gallery is one of three dedicated Pacific galleries in Australia. The idea is for it to reflect our contemporary living cultures today here in, in Victoria, but also reaching out to the Pacific homelands and talking to and about our concerns, finding uh, a place to stand, and also connecting us to our heritage here and history of Australia in the Pacific. We have a long history. We want to put Australia in that context. It is actually part of the Pacific. And also talk about the very diverse cultures here in, in the Pacific. There are over 2,000 languages. It covers a third of the world's surface and the cultural traditions go back 40,000 years. So those are big figures that wider audiences, I think, would find fascinating. And even our Pacific communities may not realise the depth and strength of our, of our histories, the strength of our arts and cultures. We contribute to a lot to uh, Australia and the wider world. And indeed. And uh, it was so exciting, actually, just to to speak with uh, Sione and hear more. And I couldn't help thinking about Scott Morrison's recent visit to the Pacific and uh, kind of felt that it would probably be useful if he knew a little bit more. Or I mean, I don't know what he knows. I just can't comment. But certainly um, the, on clim- the silence on climate change was embarrassing all around. And uh, if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Sione Nappi-Francis, and he's the lead curator of Museum Victoria's Tafe Pacifica Gallery. But I was interested also in knowing more about the current exhibition, Tatao, Marks of Polynesia, Our Voices, Our Bodies, Our Marks, and how that came about. At the same time as this exhibition was coming up at the Immigration Museum, we were redeveloping our exhibition and reaching out to our community. One of our researchers, uh, Rita 
Seo Manutafa is a Samoan ethnomusicologist and had links to a recent PICA event, which is a Pacific big body here in Melbourne, to bring the Suluapa clan, some members of the Suluapa clan and uh, Samoan community here to have a customary Samoan tatau. Rita is one of the uh, main people who run uh, Pika and she has been working with the Suluapa clan who are senior and well-regarded Tofunga Totau, Tatau experts from Samoa, to bring them over here and link them with Samoan families to bring the customary gifting of marks, the, the whole customary process around being marked is, is one that engages the families, communities. It is all about service. It's not just about marks. It's about how you stand in your community, something that you aspire to. And it's also about brother and sister, respectful relationships and lifting those relationships. I'm very privileged to uh, n- have known um, Rita and uh, have seen the benefits for the Samoan community and wider Pacifica community here in uh, Melbourne with this engagement. Can I just ask, yeah. when you say tatau, what are you talking about? What are you referring to? In the Pacific, the word tatau is a Samoan word. In Tongan, it's tatatau and has uh, other variations. Uh, the word tatau is balanced marks. It means the gifting of marks and motifs that have meaning and individual meaning as they pertain to uh, the, the artist or the tofungo tatau. When you say marks, you mean marks on the body? That's right. So I see tatau as a, a language of marks. It's a language of motifs. Marks have mana, as language does have mana, has spiritual power. And it's something that not many people realise that a mark actually has so much, much more meaning. Some marks are actually sacred, some are open, but uh, it, it's really about respecting the customary traditions of tatau. I might talk about where the word tattoo comes from. So when the early settler colonists came through uh, the Pacific, they heard this term tatau. It became the word tattoo. It's in some of Cook's early journals, and it, it actually was a language that ended up on the bodies of some of those sailors, and there was a returned home to their homelands in Europe. Uh, but in the Tongan context, the customary marks were discontinued by an act of the parliament in 1830. The king of Tonga at that time passed a law forbidding the marking of the body from that point forward. And that is reflected in other parts of the Pacific, such as Hawaii, in Tahiti, and elsewhere, that the traditions were discontinued. But in Samoa and in parts of Melanesia and Northern Pacific, they persisted in Micronesia also. And those traditions are continuing today. But for Tongans, after 1830, there were still some that would go to Samoa to receive the marks from those Tofungo Tatao, those Tatao experts. They're now revitalising the gifting of marks in Tonga and, and the motifs. What is the cultural significance of the Tatao, the cultural meaning? Yeah, I cannot speak from the Samoan context, but I can speak from the, the Tongan Australian context here in Melbourne where, where I've grown up. The Tatao or Tatatao has now become a way for people in the diaspora to connect to their culture, connect to their specific cultural heritage and explore those marks that are open. It would be preferential to receive those marks or ask permission for those marks for your family, for your community and then engage with the Tofunga Tatao. 
Stato expert, but it's a case-by-case basis. You know, I, I don't want to speak on everyone's behalf, but in my context, I was lucky to be able to collaborate with a, with a Tatao artists with some of those custom remarks which uh, connected me back to my Tongan heritage. And uh, one of the things that you said in the brief about the paper that you're going to be giving at the Immigration Museum on September 15th, you've talked about that each tattoo, if that's the word tatao, tatatao, they're unique to each person. Is that right? Well, I would say the same thing about all marks on the body are unique. Any mark is a rite of passage. It's something that, that is about a personal point of pride. It's something that no one takes lightly. But if you're talking about any marks that have mana, that are about community or about being respectful, they have even more meaning to those who receive them. In terms of the older traditions in Tonga, some of those marks take a number of attempts, not just in a, in a day, it would take months. So that's quite a long process of um, having, is it, do you call it ink, or having it applied? Are you yes, talking? that's right. Well, in the Tongan context, it's, it was very similar to the Samoan context. Some of the, the chiefs, uh, the people who were from the aristocracy uh, in Tonga, there was, it's quite hierarchical. Uh, they would receive their marks in Samoa, but those of other charters of society would receive their marks in, in Tonga. It's a privilege to ha- have the knowledge, to understand the whole making of the mark. You've got to know how to make the tools. There's a whole apprenticeship process of being having to stretch the skin to receive the, the comb. There's a whole process around it. It's uh, something that no one takes lightly, even today, to engage with being a, a, either a tattoo artist or a tofungo tatao. It's very important to take that role seriously and to receive a mark. It's always a relationship between community, the artist or the tofunga, and the recipient and his community, and you're taking that mark forward with you. I'm curious about how old you were when you got your tatatao. I have marks on my body. I received them quite late. I have a uh, great-grandfather who had marks. He went to Samoa from Tonga to receive his marks. So I knew that there was a tradition in my family of receiving marks. had the opportunity to collaborate with a Melbourne-based tattooist. I came up with some open marks based on tupper designs to claim my cultural heritage and find a way forward there. How long did it take you to receive your mark? I had about close to eight sessions, and they're not finished yet, unfortunately, but it's a process. I was going to ask how you felt when you uh, received your marks, but it's not finished yet, so I, th- I think you don't know that yet. I really do feel very proud to have these marks, and it's not that I show them off. It's more a personal connection, personal journey, and when they are finished, I will feel very proud indeed. It is about connecting to the wider Pacific as well. I have marks that relate to my heritage in other parts of the Pacific, and I'd like to also connect to my European heritage too. I think that that's something that marks can do. They can connect us to the multiplicity of who we are. Wonderful. And that was Sione Nappi Francis, lead curator of museums, Museum Victoria's Tay Pacifica Gallery. And a big thank you to all our guests today, and stay tuned for Women on the Line. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au 
And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.